In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. So a couple of weeks ago, I was the victim of an attempted disinformation campaign. And I wanted to reflect on it. In a weird way, this little podcast entry, which shouldn't be more than about 10 minutes, but don't quote me, is, I guess, ironic. Because... I thought the best way to deal with what had happened is to not oxygenate it. By definition, if you are reflecting on it, it could grow legs. And that's exactly one of the aims behind disinformation campaigns. But I'm doing it for an instrumental reason. A mate of mine persuaded me that it would be functionally useful to explain why disinformation campaigns are problematic and how, if you are the target of one, perhaps you wish to think about dealing with it. And upon reflection, I thought that probably is prudent advice in terms of my position as something of a public figure of sorts, And also given how much thinking I had done on the issue that I had shared with him privately that had prompted him to say, I get you, and I think what you've just shared with me via WhatsApp is actually worth putting in a future podcast edition. So I'm going to straddle these different objectives, i.e. not oxygenating what happened, and at the same time saying something of interest to you about disinformation campaigns, by being deliberately vague about the example at hand and therefore not oxygenating it, but still making some precise comments on disinformation as such. Let me start then with the vague part of it. Basically, someone had generated an infographic that purported to reference something I had written that was not the case. It contained blatant lies and it aimed to demonstrate that I am capable of writing maliciously about other persons in society. That obviously, if it were true or if it were regarded as truth by a significant number of persons seeing the infographic, would obviously undermine my general integrity, specifically my professional integrity, and also that of the platform that hosts my work currently. That raises the question, which then brings me to the second part of this, how does one deal with that? Do you put a massive stamp on it and say fake news and republish the original infographic and let it travel so that persons can be aware of the fact that it had not originated from you, or do you just ignore it and hope that the matter fizzles out and also hope that the average reader is able to discern bullshit from that which is coherent and credible? Or, if something is done so slick, how do you deal with the conundrum that it was done so well that unless it is a particularly shoddy piece of disinformation campaign effort, you kind of have to set the record straight. And I was in the latter category with this example because 
on the face of it, if you did not look carefully, the aesthetics of the darn thing were fairly decent. So much so that a couple of folks who were mentioned as supposedly targets of an article I had written about them, which this infographic was about, had actually even reached out to me to say, hey, what's going on here? I see this thing's been circulated. As it happened, and I'm glad they did so without reaching out to me, the platform that I write most for at the moment had already dealt with it swiftly, effectively, and efficiently by making it categorically clear on the platform where this matter had arisen most prominently that, in fact, they had not published it, sanctioned it, neverhood, and it had not been written by me, and they had put what is now regarded as industry standard, a massive stamp of fake news on it, and it did not grow legs. So in fact, if you're listening to this podcast and you try and Google it or go and do a search, I might be doing exactly what I was advising someone not to do, which is to make the matter discussed again. I've got to believe that four or five people who've known me intimately had the audacity of saying to me, phew, we're so glad, having spoken to you on WhatsApp, that you confirm that this is absolute balderdash. And I was annoyed. Some of them include journalists, and I scolded them. For starters... You should know that I'm nerdish about spelling and grammatical hygiene. The first indicator that you're dealing with shoddy work is if there is a mismatch between the voice, the style, or, in this particular case, the attention to detail in terms of grammar, punctuation, on the part of the person that is the target of this information, and the piece of work that had been shoddily produced by the campaigners. And that's exactly what we had in this particular case. That should have been the first red flag. I mean, the second is obviously the fact that it was such an obviously unethical piece of supposed writing that to imagine I could have produced it is to imagine that I would be silly enough to do that which is from a media ethics and from a moral point of view wrong and most people instantly knew that wasn't the case Uh, one or two people almost believed it and I was disappointed and told them as such because you know I tell it the way I see it and I said to one person I hope he's listening two two in fact one woman one man both of them journalists Um, how dare you needed my reassurance before you knew that this was nonsense? I mean, for starters, give me some credit. I know how to spell. And number two, why on earth would an open man with my identity on the issue that was the subject matter of this fake news reproduce a form of hatred and prejudice that simply would reveal me to suffering from internalized oppression? But the consequences are real. And the reason why my friend urged me to share my reflections with you is because there are real consequences to disinformation. And that's why it is important to not be lackadaisical in how we think about it and whether we respond to it. My good friend and fellow broadcast and journalist, Reedy Klabi, and I often debate this matter. She spends far more time than I do on Twitter 
hitting back at complete and utter rubbish. And sometimes I will say to her privately, and I know she won't mind me sharing, because there's an important insight to our dialectic about how to handle this. And I say to her, really take a break, man. Just ignore that idiot. And they are simply trying to distract you. They're not susceptible to reasoned engagement, and therefore your energies are misdirected. And sometimes Reedy will listen. She's her own person, as am I. Um, and on other occasions, she will say to me, you see, yes, yeah, but here is my philosophical, practical, principle justification for why I do bother. And it has to do with the fact that there is a battle for mind share on social media that is real. And in that battle, it is important to not let falsehoods and bullshit proliferate uncontested. It muddies the waters and it has genuine, genuine consequences for our democracy and also existential material consequences for individuals besides the negative overall impact on the quality of public debate. So it's not just something as pie in the sky, as ethereal, as theoretical, as quote-unquote public debate that gets messed up and sullied. Real people's lives can be affected in really negative ways, perniciously. Irreversible damage can be done to their reputations. Ultimately, their income streams can be affected. How they are viewed can be affected. Relationships can be impaired in their lives as a result of misinformation and disinformation campaigns. And therefore, you cannot, if you have a voice and some social power and recognize it, you can't be indifferent when you see it proliferating. And so I respect that. I respect that, right? Obviously, how long is a piece of string? As with any battle, like the fight against racism, against misogyny, classism, you pick your battles and you can't do it 24-7. And if you do have the energy, then then fine. I, I kind of accept it. But what I want to end with, which is really, I think, the point ultimately I made to my friend Bongani that I think was the basis of him recommending that I share my thoughts with you, is that the most important aim of disinformation is to distract us. I've just spent 10 minutes talking to you about disinformation. I could have spent this 10 minutes talking to you about racism, about the budget speech from the finance minister of South Africa this week that we are all awaiting less than 24 hours from when I am recording this little 10-minute short insert on disinformation. I could be reflecting, which I will do in the next couple of days, on my conversation with Tim Becker Mukatobi, which turned out to be our most downloaded podcast in the last six months. Such was your fascination with him and I talking about racism in the workplace and using the legal profession as a case study with which to deal with what we call competency racism. I could be reading poetry for you about the banality of aspects of everyday life unrelated to identity politics. I could be talking to you about how horrible it is going to the gym as often as I do and still battling a BMI that doesn't quite want to reward you. There's all sorts of things I could rather be doing. Disinformation campaigns are not about 
the truth. The people involved in those campaigns don't value truth. They're not scared of counter-evidence that demonstrates that what they put out on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram were false. That is why when I say on bullshit, which I recommend you Google, I mean bullshit philosophically. Bullshit in philosophy has become a very fun but serious concept. And people who are bullshitters philosophically are worse than liars. People who lie don't want to be busted as being liars. In a weird kind of way, people who lie and only lie but don't bullshit are people who value the truth and hope they will never be unmasked as liars. Bullshitters don't care about truth and truthfulness as norms, as values at all. You can't shame them. People involved in disinformation campaigns are bullshitters. Their sole purpose to those folks that have hired them to generate the disinformation campaign material The sole purpose is to distract you. So if you can get a discussion going about Eusebius and a disinformation campaign around him, then maybe you're not going to listen to Eusebius on racism. You're not going to listen to Eusebius on his critique of the shortcomings of the ANC government. You're not going to listen to Eusebius and his analyses around critical weaknesses in our main opposition parties. You're not going to listen to Eusebius about his moral critique of markets and why markets are just as blind and therefore shouldn't be trusted to settle questions of fairness. You're not going to listen to Eusebius on which authors are the coolest, the most important to read, which books to go and buy. In other words, the aim is to distract you by making you suddenly have a meta-conversation along the lines of, hmm, should I listen to this guy? Can I trust him? Is he still a credible analyst? Next time I come across his writing, can I take it at face value? Is he honest? Those are the kinds of questions disinformation campaigners want you to obsess about. And it's a victory for them if we get bogged down around those questions. And that is why I didn't oxygenate it. But the reason I did this entry for you is that I accept Bongani was right and uh, he will give himself a pat on the back. (laughs) I love you, my friend. That there is some value in stepping back weeks after that attempted disinformation campaign failed to have its necessary effect. It is useful to step back from that and hopefully empower you to understand the importance of being on your guard. If it looks to you like bullshit, chances are it is bullshit. And before believing it, ask some critical questions rather than simply swallowing it whole, even if aesthetically it looks like the same template that the regular news that you'd normally get is presented on. <laughs>